Hopefully you brought a Bible with you. We're going to look in a couple different places tonight, starting in Exodus chapter 4. And the we've done a Sunday night series called The Summer of No Excuses. And uh, so this morning, I wrote out my tithe check and then stuck it back in the checkbook and stuck it in the slot and got here for church. It was offering time and... I thought, no excuses, that was just dumb. Uh, but we're talking about no excuses in serving God. We're all going to make mistakes sometimes. We're going to goof things up. Somebody told me their offering check is sitting on their dinner table, and it'll be where when they get home. Um, so we'll drive over to your house and get it tonight. Not really. Not really. But, but listen, we're all going to make mistakes. So when we say no excuses, we don't mean you have to be perfect. Nor do we mean just don't offer any reason why anything's gone wrong. And don't, but talking about getting real, getting serious about following God. Not excusing your own behavior or misbehavior. In Exodus chapter 4, well, it starts in chapter 3, Moses' list of excuses. It continues into chapter 4, and he gives a new one that we'll look at this week. And in Exodus chapter 4, and verse number 10, Then Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue, so the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. See, through this whole process, Moses has been looking at himself. Now this morning we were talking about um, overcoming bitterness and change from the inside out. Change your thinking, change your life. Uh, so you have to think about the inside of you, but don't obsess about it. Don't live just in your inner world. Don't just focus on yourself. Moses, every one of his excuses are because he's looking in the wrong direction. He's looking inside instead of looking at God. When David fought Goliath, uh, I like that uh, that sermon that Pastor Steve shared one time. He said, he said David was the only one who saw the giant. All the other guys just saw a big guy out in the field. David saw the giant because the only giant in the story was God. And David went with God. And Moses looks on his own limitations instead of the awesomeness of God. He was looking in the wrong direction. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. Now, it's kind of interesting that when Moses left Egypt, he fled to Midian, and now the Midianites are oppressing Israel in uh, Judges 6. And they've been, uh, the Israelites had sinned against God, and God allowed the Midianites to come in and take over and rule. And so uh, Israel's really struggling. In verse 11, now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Oprah, which belonged to Joash. The My brain is stuck again. Abizrite, 
And his son Gideon threshed wheat in the wine press in order to hide it from the Midianites. Where would you normally thresh wheat? You remember what threshing wheat was? You'd mash it around and then you'd toss it up in the air so the wind would blow the chaff away and the seeds are heavier and they would fall to the ground. You'd normally do that on a hilltop. Where was a wine press normally located? The bottom of a valley. And it was the low spot. And they'd mash the grapes to make the fresh grape juice. And it was called the wine press. And, and they'd stomp on them. Uh, they still do that today uh, in a lot of parts of the world. They still make, make it that way. I've seen it made that way. And people with purple grape juice all the way up past their knees are stomping on those grapes. And then people drink it. Interesting. Uh, but uh, they were pressing it. So he's threshing wheat down there. And, and it's less wind, it's in a hollow spot, it's in a shallow spot, and the best place to thresh, but see if he threshed wheat on top of the hill, the enemy could see it, come and take the wheat away. So he's doing it in hiding. He's in fear. He's cowering. Verse 12, And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. <laughs> he didn't look like a mighty man of valor at that moment. He was cowering in fear of the enemy. And Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Where are his miracles which our fathers told us uh, when God brought us out of Egypt and now God has forsaken us and left us in the hands of the Midianites? Now, it's interesting to me that at the beginning of this story, Gideon questions God just like Moses does. And at the end of this story, Gideon kind of shows that he's not fully connected with God. If you take your Bibles and turn to chapter 8, there's uh, a funny story here in chapter 8. In chapter 8 and verse 22, after the victory... The men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son, and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of the Midianites. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Now drop down to verse 29. My Bible won't make that page. There we go. Verse 29. Now, Gideon's name was also Jerubabel, and we'll explain that in just a minute. Then Jerubabel, or Gideon, the son of Joash, went and dwelt in his own house. Gideon had 70 sons who were his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, whose name he called Abimelech. Do you have any notes in your Bible that say what the translation of Abimelech is? What does it mean? Abimelech means my dad is king. So in verse 22, he said, no, I will not be king over you. But then he named his son, my dad is king. Isn't that interesting? That's just a fun story, right? Um, Now look back at verse 23, uh, verse 27, sorry. Um, Gideon took all these offering the people gave to him and he made it into an ephod and set it up in his city, Oprah, and all Israel played the harlot with it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his house. 
So at the beginning, he's cowering in fear and not trusting the Lord. At the end, he's not following the Lord wholly. So when we see the story of Gideon, we see two things demonstrated. We see the frailty of humanity and the awesomeness of God, both in great detail here. Gideon trusted God a little bit, and God did great things, like James said, draw nigh to me, and I'll draw nigh to you. And Gideon did trust God, and they did have a great victory. But the great victory came not because Gideon, man of God. It came because God used the man Gideon. There's a difference. We need to remember that in our own lives. When we have great victories, it's not because we are so totally with it, It's because God is the awesome one who loves and works through sinful people. Always has. Nobody's going to be perfect. But Gideon really messed up and he caused other people to stray away from following God. And then he named his son. My dad is the king. It seemed way funnier to me than it seemed to you guys. Okay. Uh, Judges, back to Judges chapter 6. God doesn't always make sense to us. There's times when we work really hard, make a great sacrifice, and then it's like it disappears. And uh, But God makes sense to himself. And someday we'll understand why God allows the ins and outs and little things. Uh, in verse 19, Gideon went to prepare a young goat for the angel who came and was talking with him. And he asked him if he would stay and wait till he came back. And the angel said, yes, I'll wait. So in verse 19, he went in, prepared a young goat, and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. Now, it doesn't take a huge amount of time, but we're talking at least 30 to 60 minutes of effort to get the meat cut and then cook in and get the unleavened bread. Um, so he put the meat in a basket and he put the broth in a pot And he brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on the rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put the end of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread. And the fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And then the angel of the Lord disappeared out of his sight, departed out of his sight. So he went to all the work. He prepared this meal. And now he brings the meat and the broth and the bread. And he sits them on a rock. And boom, they're gone. Consumed. Fire came out of a rock and consumed it. And Gideon was left all of his labor of the last hour or so gone. And then Gideon has an amazing insight. In verse number 22, Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord. (laughs) Before that, Gideon wasn't sure. Now he knew this was an angel of the Lord. It's funny to me in in the Gospels how many times it says, then the apostles understood that Jesus was the Son of God. It's like they finally figured it out. But then they weren't sure. And then they figured it out. But then they weren't sure. And then they figured it out. Uh, Maybe they're a little bit like us, right? 
so the, the Lord said to him in verse 23, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. So he built an altar there. Now, Gideon had a dad who was a Baal worshiper. And Gideon was trying to follow God. Uh, that's an awkward home environment. Thankfully, I've never had. My parents were following the Lord. They taught me to follow the Lord. It made it easier to follow the Lord. Uh, but in verse 25, uh, the Lord says to him, Take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord, your God, on top of this rock in the proper arrangement, and take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the, with the wood of the image which you cut down. So Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him, but because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too, he did it by night. He didn't do it in the daytime. He did it by night. And so they woke up in the morning, and guess what? The altar to Baal is gone, and the big wood statue beside it is gone, and the burning sacrifices are there. So in verse number 29, they figured out it was Gideon who had done this, so the men of the city said to Joash, in verse 30, Bring out your son that he may die, because he's torn down the altar of Baal. Now Joash has been following Baal. He had an altar to Baal on his property. But Joash has an amazing insight here. In verse number 32, uh, I'm sorry, verse number 31, Joash said, Would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If Baal is a god, let him plead for himself because his altar's been torn down. He's saying, if Baal's really the god, let Baal show that he's the god. And of course, Baal couldn't because Baal was a false god. Possibly someone uh, empowered by a demon had encouraged and started the worshiping of Baal and there was no part of God in Baal but then in verse 32 then he called his son Jerubah Baal meaning let Baal plead against him so he's saying hey let Baal deal with with uh, Gideon and if there's an issue we're just going to call him Jerubah Baal and see what Baal will do and what did Baal do? Nothing. Why? Because Baal was nothing. Verse 33. The Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east gathered together and the Spirit of the Lord, in verse 34, came upon Gideon. He blew the trumpet and people gathered together. And then in verse 36, uh, Gideon said, Lord, if you're going to save Israel by my hand, uh, look, I want to put a fleece. So he takes this fleece, a piece of fabric, and he lays it on the ground. He said, Lord, in the morning, let all the ground be dry and let this fleece be wet. And in the morning, all the ground was dry and the fleece was wet. And he said, now, Lord, can you do one more thing? Tomorrow, can you make all the ground wet and just the fleece be dry? And the Lord did. Now, I know a lot of people, it's been called, you know, times of doubting the Lord. You put out a fleece before the Lord. Set out your fleece before the Lord like Gideon did. 
We don't need to do that. We can trust the Lord. Moses learned that when God said he's doing something, God's doing it. You don't have to question him. You don't have to doubt him. And God had already revealed himself to be fully God when he consumed the meat and that on the rock. So that should have been enough. But it wasn't. This shows Gideon's weakness. He was cowering in fear from the enemy. He didn't have boldness even when God confirmed what was going on. But then verse uh, chapter 8. Then Jerubbabel, which is Gideon, and all the people that were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Herod, and so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many. You know, uh, I preached a message once called uh, Baptist Superstitions. Uh, the things that people would do, uh, believe. And one of the Baptist superstitions is the more people you have praying, the more God's going to listen. And yet God said here, there were too many people. Now, if we're going to go up to battle against a large army, you want a good-sized group. Midian, or Gideon's guys were still way outnumbered by the Midianites and the Amalekites. Way outnumbered. And God said, there's too many. Do you remember why God said there's too many? Why? Because they'll take the credit. God said, I'm going to bring this deliverance. And if you have too big of an army, then they will know that they'll think they did it. And the focus was not supposed to be, we are the army of God. Look what we did. No, the focus was supposed to be, look what God did. That's why, you know, after preaching and teaching, if you're teaching a Sunday school lesson or an Awana lesson and you preach, after you're done, you don't want people coming up talking about what a wonderful preacher or teacher you are. You want them thinking about what an awesome God we serve and follow. It's all about him. And Gideon's numbers could get in the way of what God was going to do. How many guys did Gideon start out with? 32,000. Okay. So God said, we're going to limit some. And Gideon got up and he said, hey, listen, anybody who's afraid, go on home. How many left? 22,000 guys left. You're Gideon. You're preparing to go to war against an enemy that vastly outnumbers you. And you just lost two-thirds of your army. And so Gideon goes back to God and God said, Gideon, there's still too many. So what was the next test that God gave to them? Drinking water. He said, take them down by the river and watch the way they drink. I was going to model it here, but I'm afraid I couldn't get back up. Hey, Benjamin, come here. No. So we'll pretend this is the ground, okay? 
And the people who got on the ground and then bent over into the river to drink. Have you ever done that? Man, you can't do that today. The rivers are all chemical creations. But back in the day, you could do that. Stick your head in and open your eyes up and grab fish and frogs and and drink fresh water. And and that was good stuff back then. But they'd stick their head in and get a drink. And then they'd get up. And and there were these other guys. And they'd do it like this. They'd cup the water in their hand and they'd bring it up to their mouth while they're looking around and they're watching. And God told Gideon, keep those guys. Let all the other guys go home. Okay, he started with 32,000. He's down to 10,000. Now God says, 10,000 is still too many. You got to send a bunch home. And he sends home 9,700. He's left with 300 guys. That's not very many. When he he started, but uh, verse 7, the Lord said to Gideon, by the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go. So every man uh, went to his own place. And then the people took their provisions. They got ready for the battle. And normally in that day in battle, what some of the soldiers would have would be coats of mail. Uh, That would help slow down swords and wouldn't help a whole lot against a large spear, but it could help deflect arrows and slow down the attack and the um, impact of swords. And in in the same way that cops today wear bulletproof vests. And, And bulletproof vests can't save you from bullets, rifle bullets especially, but it can slow down the bullet enough that sometimes you can get shot with a handgun at close range and still live because you had a bulletproof vest on. So they guys would have that. They would have swords. They would have shields. With the sword, they could attack the enemy. With the shield, they could deflect. Some of them would have bows and arrows. Someone would have slingshots and rocks. And they could hurl those rocks out there. But... God has a special plan for Gideon's 300 guys. Now what they're going to do is they're going to go out into the valley and a hundred of them are going to be back there and a hundred of them are going to be over here and a hundred of them are going to be over here. So they have three separate groups and they're surrounding this valley where the enemy is encamped at the bottom. And I picture them being not at the top of the hill but about halfway down the hill. And they're in this valley with hills ringing around it. I know Phoenix calls itself a valley, but really it's a hill with a lot of flat land around it. Um, uh, but th- this valley had had a low spot in the valley all around and mountains all around. And so Gideon's guys got around there. And what did they have in one hand? A lantern in what? A lantern inside a pitcher. Now, when I was a kid, I, I was picturing, you know, like a plastic pitcher, but it was a clay pitcher, a pl- clay water pitcher, and inside they had a lantern burning. What was in their other hand? A trumpet. We should have had you bring your trumpet tonight, Travis. You could blast that trumpet and everybody would think it was the rapture and be so disappointed to still be here. Uh, so they had the trumpet in one hand and they had the pitcher in the other hand. And then when they got the right signal, they were going to 
attack the enemy. No, they were just going to announce their presence and God was going to attack the enemy. But before that happened, God allowed Gideon to sneak down in the camp and hear somebody say, this is the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. God has delivered the Midianites into Gideon's hand. Finally, Gideon trusted the Lord. Finally. So they get up there and they're ready and the signal goes and they smash the pitchers. So now the lanterns are burning brightly. And then a trumpet sounds. Normally, in a battle like that, for every trumpet player, you'd have dozens and possibly a hundred soldiers or more. Because the trumpet can blast long and loud. Like, right, Jennifer? <laughs> trumpet can really make a lot of sound. My dad hated it when I'd be at one end of the house practicing trumpet. My brother would be at the other end of the house practicing trombone. And, and dad would go for a walk. Uh, but as, as that, that's, the trumpets would blast, ah, uh, 300 trumpets blasting and blasting and blasting. And the enemy, they wake up. It's the middle of the night. They wake up. They know they're being attacked. They know they're being besieged. All these trumpets blasting. And they look out on the hillside. And there's lights all over there and all over there and all back there. And they're surrounded by... And the Lord confused them. And they started attacking each other. And so, you know, Jim Ricosi comes out of this tent. And he attacks Ben Qualls. And Benjamin comes out of his tent. And Megan takes him down right? Uh, uh, we All this attack going on, they're fighting back and forth, and the stress and distress going on. And God brought the victory. And they chased after them, and they pursued them, and they won the day. Because God brought the victory. See, God very deliberately uses the weak and the small to demonstrate his power and his greatness. He uses the weak and the small. Gideon threshing wheat in the wine press. Gideon saying, okay, God, I know it's really you. I mean, you burned up the rock fire out of the rock, and I, I know this is of God, but I'm still not certain that I should do this. Can you just make the fleece wet? Hey, that's really cool that you made the fleece wet. Can you just make the fleece dry and all the ground wet? And, and then God still has to give him another encouragement to do the very basic thing that he knew was the right thing to do, to trust God and go forth into battle. See, Gideon and Moses are a lot like us. Sometimes we think we're not up to the task. God has challenged us. God has called us. God has gifted us. God has equipped us. Uh, God has empowered us through the Holy Spirit. And, and we think, I'm just, I'm just not up to this. I don't know how many times I've heard people being asked by a leader in the church, if they could serve in some capacity, and I'm not bad-mouthing victory, I'm talking about other churches uh, through the course of my life and in our, our adult ministries, Kathy and I have had the opportunity to be actively involved in several different churches 
as adults uh, serving on staff or volunteer staff and adult ministries and kids ministries in churches in California, Arizona, and Texas. And uh, God, God, we have seen so many times churches in desperate need of workers and people with abilities who could step up, but they're just not sure. They, they don't want to commit. They're not sure they could handle it. And God has given the ability to do it, to pursue it, if we choose to follow Him. God deliberately uses the weak and the small. Remember, that's exactly what God's, uh, what Paul said, that through his weakness, the power of God was more evident in his life. It's, it's almost like we got a meter that says, if I have a lot of strength, then the power of God is weak. And if I have less strength, then the power of God is great. So what's going on in your heart, in your life? What do you feel God's burdening your heart to try something? You know, we've talked a little about these videos that we have going on. And this is seriously way outside my comfort zone to do this. I've never done anything like it. Uh, I felt the Lord encourage me to do this. And I dumped it on Benjamin. I said, we're going to do 30 of these in the next several weeks. (laughs) Benjamin, about three days into it, he said, I thought you were going to give me time to warm up and get used to this. It was trial by fire. And and it's really awkward for me to do it, and I really don't like it. But I felt like it was something I should do and something we could use in the future as a church that as we learn and as we grow. And Benjamin and Megan have been huge helps to me in the process uh, of doing this. Uh, but every day I do it, uh, I, I think, is this really what I should be doing? You know? But but it was beyond me. It seemed like it. And then Benjamin showed me a few things and helped with a few things. And we had some equipment break and had to replace some stuff. But uh, I think we would have a bigger problem if I said, you know what? I'm gifted at this. I need to be on YouTube. I need to get my message out there. Save the world through Terry Green. You know? That would be a bigger problem. When when we're a little weak, we're a little timid, that's okay. But that doesn't mean don't step up. Years ago, uh, Kathy, I encouraged her to lead a ladies' Bible study. She was not comfortable with that. And I encouraged her to do it. And she said, well, I'll try it. What year was that? 2000, she tried it. For 17 years running, she's done it. (laughs) Why? Because she had the capacity. She just had to step outside her comfort zone, step up and do. God works through weakness. We don't have to be great. In fact, the ones who think they're great, they're an obstacle to what God's trying to do. Just step up and try. God very deliberately uses the weak and small to demonstrate His power and His greatness. So, in reality, 
If Gideon had been on top of the mountain threshing wheat, let the enemy come. I'm ready to take him. There was a guy like that in Israel. He lived during the time of the judges. What was his name? Samson. Let him come. Let him take me. Did he lead in victory? Yes, he did. But he also had a mess of a personal life. Had no character. God brought a victory. But God wants people who will step up and serve and allow him to work in their hearts and lives. That includes kids doing what they can do, women doing what they can do, men doing what they can do, all of us together doing what we can do, serving Him. And our weakness is a testimony to His strength. Some of you men went through a men's Bible study years ago. I can't remember the name of the guy. Jeffries? Jeffrey? Jeffrey? Neil Jeffries, and he stutters. And it was kind of funny sometimes because he could go a little bit and then suddenly he'd get stuck on a word. you just go... Like when your record gets a skip and some of you are looking at me like, what's a record? Like when your DVD gets scratched. But, you know, it skip, 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 skip. And he would do that. But he had a great message. And a challenge to us as men. And at first... He was not going to speak for the Lord because his speaking bothered him and he felt weak. But God used that. And all through history, God has used weak people. So the reality is, you need to thank God that you're just not good enough. Otherwise, God might not use you. Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians, please. I'm sorry, I meant, I should have said 1 Corinthians. When I got to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I realized that was the wrong spot. I should have written this down. Normally I do. This passage of Scripture will show up in the videos this coming week. But listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I, brethren... When I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. See, the Scriptures record that God uses the weak things of this world to confound the wise. Uh, the weak things to confound the mighty, or the lesser things to confound the mighty. God demonstrates that it's through Him. It's of Him, by Him, through Him 
And if it were not of God, then it, it could fail. But if it is of God, it can't fail. And he demonstrates his might and his power by using people who don't have might and don't have power. Gideon and Moses. Moses was slow to get started, but he left a long legacy. Did he live perfectly? No. There were a couple of things he did later in his life that were really a mess. One of them specifically, he beat on the rock and told the people, why do God and I have to do this for you? When it was all of God. All he was supposed to do was speak to the rock and point people to God. Gideon, oh, he was used mightily of God to bring a deliverance. And then he created false worship in Egypt. I'm sorry, in Israel. And he named his son. My dad's really the king. <laughs> You're going to mess up. You are not going to follow God perfectly. But don't let that stop you from serving him. Follow him. Give your life to serve him. Don't feel like you have to be strong. You know what you have to be? Faithful. And God's strength will show up when you don't have Him. We're going to send the kids and Mrs. Green.